Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you together as the body of Christ. We pray, God, that during this time that you would focus us on you, that you would block out all distractions. Pray that you would teach us from your word about you and how we are to live for you. I pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, um, open still to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to uh, be reading from that this morning. When I was in ninth grade, um, I was just entering high school, and um, I was on the basketball team over at Salisbury Christian And as we were starting the season, there was a scheduling conflict with our normal evening practice time. So we had to uh, have our practices very early in the morning before school started. Uh, I grew up outside of Seaford, and we had a bit of a drive into the school. So me and my dad, who was uh, the basketball coach, would wake up at about 5 and make the trip down here to the school for practices. And uh, those two weeks that we had those early morning practices were two of the most difficult weeks in my memory. Uh, We woke up at 5 a.m., and then we were doing sprints by 6 a.m., only to finish and still have a full day of school to go through afterwards. It was really exhausting, and during those weeks, I often questioned whether basketball was really worth waking up that early. Uh, but I stayed the course, and I stuck with it during those difficult weeks, and um, it, was, it ended up being definitely worth it. Our team ended up winning the conference championship at the end of the season, and if I hadn't been willing to stick it out uh, during those two horrible weeks at the beginning of the season, then I wouldn't have been able to experience that. So today, we're going to be talking about staying the course in our faith, and there's a much more significant reward at stake for us staying the course in our faith than there was for me sticking through those early morning basketball practices. So if you would read with me in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. The tone that Paul has in these verses is very different from his tone at the beginning of the previous chapters. He's very serious here, and he is giving Timothy a strong warning about the evil that surrounds us in this world. It can be easy when we come across long lists like this in the Bible to just group all of these different things together as evil and sinful behaviors, and then just move on. But Paul has a purpose for why he mentions each and every one of these various sinful behaviors. And as we look closer, we can see that they all center around the decision to place our love in something other than Christ. He mentions the love of self, the love of money, as well as lovers of pleasure, and those who do not love good, and those who do not love God. Proverbs 4.27 says, Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. And as we can see in this first section, there are all kinds of evil things and ways to sin that are around us and available to us. We need to keep our feet from evil by maintaining our focus on Christ. So the first thing that we are tempted to choose to love instead of Christ is ourselves. Love of self is caring more about ourselves than anything else. And when we value our own desires over everything and everyone else, including God, that is sinful. It's sinful because when we value ourselves above all other things, we're saying that we're more important than God. 
that we're more important than those around us. And that leads to other sins that are mentioned here in these verses, like being selfish, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unforgiving, conceited, and slanderous. If we love ourselves more than we love God and others, then we are only going to do what benefits us. We aren't going to be sharing the gospel because that doesn't benefit us. We aren't going to be praying for others or doing selfless things for others because those don't benefit us either. Being a lover of self is something that we all have to fight against, and naturally we tend to look out for our own interests above those of others. It's not sinful to care about ourselves to the degree that we eat healthy and we exercise and do things that bring us joy, but this verse is, um, it's not saying that we should forsake all things that make us happy and seek to live miserable lives so that we can be completely sure that we are not loving ourselves. As we'll see with the other two things that Paul mentions our love being mistakenly placed in, there's a balance that we need to find. We're warned here to not be on the extreme side of loving ourselves above all things, but it's also wise that we not swing to the opposite side and strive to hate ourselves and deprive, us of, deprive ourselves of things that are beneficial to us. So we are tempted by the love of self, and we are tempted by the love of money. In his first letter to Timothy, in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul wrote, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money itself is not evil, but when we love money above God and above all other things, then it is evil. Just as the love of self leads us to other sins, the love of money is said to be a root of all kinds of evil, meaning that it too will lead us into more and more sin. Money can be an excellent thing. Money can be used to aid missionaries, to build churches, to strengthen existing churches, to bring clean water to parts of the world that don't have access to it, to bless those in need, to provide for our families. There are many ways that money can be used for excellent things. When we have the time of offering in each service, that's a time where we can freely give our money to support the work of God in the local church and throughout the world. But money can also be used for evil. Money can be used as a symbol of status and of power. Money is something that can be used by those who have it in abundance to shame those who have little. And the love of money causes us to be greedy, to be selfish, to be self-focused, and to not be generous. The money that each of us have been given by God is something that should not be viewed as our own, or something that we can spend however we want without consulting God. Because ultimately, every penny that we have belongs to God, and it should be used to glorify Him. We should be lovers of God and use the money that we have been given as good stewards who understand that we would have nothing if God did not see it fit to give us what we have. So we're tempted to choose to love above all else ourselves, money, and thirdly, pleasure. To be a lover of pleasure means to love things that bring us enjoyment, satisfaction, and happiness above all else. Oftentimes, the things that bring us pleasure are not in and of themselves sinful. Hobbies bring us enjoyment and happiness, as do vacations and entertainment. But when it becomes sinful is when we are living for that feeling of happiness and enjoyment instead of living for God. If we value our happiness and our enjoyment above all else, then it's going to interfere with us being self-controlled and following any of the commands of God that we do not find enjoyable. A desire to seek to always be comfortable can prevent us from sharing the gospel and from resisting sin and many other essential parts of our faith. Each of these three areas that we are tempted to misplace our love in, self, money, and pleasure, they are all connected, and they each fuel each other and lead to more and more sin. 
And they cause us to not love what we should love. In this list of sinful behaviors, there are these three areas of misplaced love, and there are two things that our love should be focused on, but it isn't. The first, which is mentioned in verse 3, is that they are not lovers of the good. To not be a lover of the good means to not love the things that God loves, such as Christian fellowship, spiritual growth, honesty, compassion, selflessness. Those who have a genuine love for God will love these things. They will desire to be in Christian fellowship. They will desire to see spiritual growth in their life and in the lives of those around them. And the second, which is mentioned as a contrast to the lovers of pleasure in verse 4, is that they are not lovers of God. As Christians, our love for God should be paramount, and flowing out of our love for God will be a love for all that is good, all that is righteous and honorable to God. If you love Christ, then you will love evangelism, because you will desire that all will be saved, just as God does. And if you love God, then you will love his people, and you will pray for them, and you will selflessly serve them. But those who do not love God will not love what is good. We as Christians need to be aware of these temptations, need to be alert, and we need to know the ways in which we are tempted to misplace our love so that we can be ready to resist those temptations and stay committed to Christ. Last week, as we discussed false teachers, we talked about the importance of knowing the Word of God ourselves so that we will not be deceived by those who distort the truth of God and try to mislead us with false teachings. As we read this next section, Pay attention to the words that describe those who are being misled by the false teachers. So read with me, starting in verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed with all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. As Paul wrote these instructions to Timothy, he was aware of the threat to the gospel. That there would be those who would attempt to distort God's truth by teaching false things. And he wanted Timothy to be prepared excuse me, to be prepared when he encountered these false teachers. But he also made it clear that these false teachers would not prevail over God's truth. As we look at these verses, there are two primary things that we can learn from them. The first is that we need to be prepared for opposition to our faith. Those who were deceived by the false teachers in these verses are described as being gullible, as being loaded down with sins, as being swayed by all kinds of evil desires. That's not the attitude of alertness that we discussed last week when talking about being prepared to have our faith challenged. Our faith will be challenged, and we need to be prepared to stand firm in it. Being gullible means to be easily convinced, and if we are not confident in the truths of the Bible, then we too will be gullible. Being loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires shows a lack of obedience and submission to a Christ-like lifestyle. Someone who's committed to honoring God with their actions could never be described in this sort of a way. But if we do not remain steadfast in our commitment to honor God with our lives, then we too will be vulnerable to being misled with false teachings. So we need to be prepared for opposition to our faith. The second lesson that we can learn from these verses is that false teachers may appear for a time to succeed in their deception, but that will not last. This promise from the word of God should be a great encouragement to us. God promises that those who teach falsely will not be able to last and they will not get very far. 
No matter how sinful man becomes, the darkness of man's sinfulness will never be able to block out the light of God's righteousness and His truth. His truth will always prevail. Thus far, this chapter is focused on the sinfulness of the world and of false teachers. But as we get to verse 10, we see a shift to encouraging Christians to stay the course, which Paul signifies with the first words of verse 10, which say, You, however. By using that phrase, he makes a distinction between Timothy and those who live in opposition to God. And in this section, we'll see his specific encouragement to Timothy and to us as followers of Christ to remain faithful to God in the midst of temptations and trials. So read with me starting in verse 10. It says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul begins by encouraging us with his own example, how he lived, what he went through, and who he lived his life for. And he mentions nine things specifically when encouraging us to resist false teachers and temptations of all kinds. The first thing that Paul mentions is his teaching. Paul's not telling Timothy to remember how great of a preacher he is. He's urging Timothy and us to stick to solid biblical teaching. We talked in chapter 1 about how Paul's teachings make up a good portion of the New Testament of our Bible. And our Bible contains the very words of God. So Paul wants us to remember that sound teaching and to hold on to it. The second thing that he explains is his way of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's the heart of his instruction here. He's encouraging us to follow his example as a man who has been committed to living his life for Christ every day since his conversion. In Acts, we can see the account of Paul's conversion from a man who was hunting down Christians to arrest them to a man who devoted himself to learning the teachings of Christ so that he could spread the gospel. And not only did he commit himself to an outward change of the message that he was speaking, but he also changed his heart. Paul became a man that was committed to staying faithful to the commands of Christ and one who rid himself of sin. That's the example that he is calling on us to follow, the example of a man who committed his life to living for Christ each and every day. The third thing that he mentions here is his purpose. In Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Paul spent his life as a Christian preaching and sharing the gospel. He made his plans based on gospel sharing and dedicated himself to being a servant of God who took the gospel to many people. While we are not all called to be pastors, and we are certainly all called to share the gospel in each one of our situations. Those of you who work as teachers or who work in the medical field or wherever you are employed have a unique opportunity to share the gospel in your work environment. And to me, that's extremely encouraging because I know that I am definitely not intelligent enough to work in something like the medical field. So it's a blessing to me to know that there are members of the body of Christ that have been gifted to serve in those areas so that the gospel can reach all people. That's one of the most amazing things about the body of Christ is that we are gifted in different things. And it's so powerful when we use the gifts that God has given us to glorify Him. If we were all gifted in the same areas or we were all called to have the same jobs, then there would be so many in our world that would not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. So whatever area that you have been gifted in, make the most of the opportunities that God provides you to share the gospel in that environment. 
because all of us who are in Christ can say that it is our purpose to share the gospel. The fourth thing that Paul mentions is his faith. There are two aspects of his faith that stand out. His faith in God for salvation and his faith in God to provide for him in this life. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul shows that his faith in God for salvation rests solely on Christ. As he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here we are reminded that our faith in God for salvation should rest solely on Christ as well. And as I mentioned in the first week of this study of 2 Timothy, uh, studying through a book of this size in such a short amount of time is going to make it tough to adequately cover every verse in the book. And though we are studying chapter 3 this week, one of the sections of Scripture in which Paul shows his faith in God to provide for him in this life comes from chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And it's a section that we won't have a chance to look at in detail next week, so I'd like to cover that now. So flip forward with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Here, Paul is in the middle of his parting remarks to Timothy, and he's giving him some varied instructions. So read with me here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to read that last verse again. And remember the context here, because Paul is talking about how this man Alexander brought a lot of harm to him, and how he was isolated without any support in this situation. He said that they deserted him. Remember also that Paul, as he's writing this letter to Timothy, believes that he's nearing the end of his life. So with that in mind, verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul trusted completely in God for his safety and deliverance. Despite the evil that Alexander did to him and the fact that many deserted him, Paul saw how God delivered him in that situation. It was clear to him that no matter what obstacle he faced in his life, God would always be looking out for him and would rescue him from evil. And here we also see how these two elements of Paul's faith coincide with each other and that Paul shows his trust in God to protect him in this life. But he also writes that ultimately, even if he dies, he knows that God will bring him safely to the eternal heavenly kingdom. Paul had complete faith in God's ability to protect him here on earth and to deliver the salvation that he promised to those who call upon the name of Jesus. And that's an example that we need to follow. Our faith in Christ for salvation is sure, and our faith in God to protect us here on earth is sure. There are many varying trials that we face, but as Christians we can face those trials with the assurance that God will rescue us from them, and that nothing can threaten the salvation that we've been given. As we move back into chapter 3, and verses 10 and 11, Seeing the example of Paul, the next two things that he mentions are his patience and his love. Having patience for things that we hope will happen is a byproduct of our trust in God. If we truly trust that God is in control, that he's working all things for the good of those who love him, 
that we will have patience to wait for what we hope for. Having patience with others is a byproduct of our love for them. And that love comes from our love for God. If we love God, then we will love those around us, selflessly and sacrificially. The next thing that he notes is his endurance. Paul lived out his faith until the end of his life. Something that we'll look at more in detail next week. But this is the ultimate test of our endurance. Because it is essential not only that we believe in Christ, but that we continue to live out our faith until the end of our lives. Finally, Paul mentions his persecutions and his sufferings. He doesn't give an exhaustive list here of his persecutions and sufferings like he does in other places in the New Testament. But he does mention three places specifically in verse 11 to remind Timothy of specific persecutions that he faced. Paul was willing to die for the gospel. And throughout his ministry, he constantly put his life in harm's way for the sake of sharing the gospel with others, not worrying about the consequences, but always trusting in God to protect him. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Paul says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving, deceiving and being deceived. This reminder that Paul writes here to remember his persecutions, his sufferings, and how he endured through it all and remained faithful to God is important for each one of us because we will endure, or we will all encounter various persecutions and sufferings throughout our lives as followers of Christ. This verse guarantees it. But as we go through those trials and the persecutions, it's encouraging for us to remember the examples of Jesus and the example of Paul, who both endured suffering but remained faithful to God in the midst of their trials. The example of how Paul lived and his faithfulness to Christ in all situations should be of great encouragement to us as we strive to stay the course in our faith. Read with me starting in verse 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Our faith is a lifelong commitment to Christ. That is why Paul urges us to continue in what we have learned and have become convinced of. God does not call us to walk the aisle and to get baptized so that we'll have some sort of seal on our salvation. And then once we've gotten that seal, we can just sit back and chill for the rest of our lives. Instead, when we make the declaration that Christ is our Lord, we are making a lifelong commitment to growing in our relationship with God. To do otherwise would be the equivalent of finding the person that you love, becoming engaged, getting married, and then as soon as both of you say, I do, and the ceremony is over, you never talk to that person again. That wouldn't make any sense. If you truly love the person, then you will make a commitment to loving them and getting to know them better for the remainder of your life. And that's how we should see our relationship with God. Salvation is not a one-and-done act where we show up, say the right things, and then never talk to God again. It's a lifelong commitment, and that is why we must continue in our faith. Paul continues in the following verses to teach about Scripture and how beneficial the Bible is for us as we seek to continue in what we have learned. Starting in verse 15, the real verse 15, since I said verse 14 was 15 a couple of seconds ago. So this says, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In verse 15, it says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
The words of the Bible are the words of salvation. Through Scripture, we can see God's plan of salvation all the way back to the beginning and leading up through the life of Christ and through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and the beginning of the church. It is through Scripture that we can know that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. In verse 16, we see that all Scripture is God-breathed. The words that we read in our Bibles are the very words of God. Yes, they were, the, these words were written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, but they were also authored by God and written for all Christians. As we've studied this book, we've looked at the original intent that Paul had when writing to Timothy, and through that, we have seen how these words can teach us about God and living for him almost 2,000 years after Timothy read them. Scripture is God-breathed, meaning it is the very words of God. And it's necessary that we take note of the qualifier that Paul wrote before this phrase. He said that all Scripture is God-breathed. Not just, the parts of the, not just parts of the Bible have been authored by God, but each and every word has been authored by God. That's why we follow it, because they are not just good words that the Apostle Paul wrote. These are perfect words that God wrote. So we don't disregard anything in the Bible because that would mean that we are ignoring the very words of God. So Scripture is the words of salvation, it is the words of God, and it is the words of sanctification. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation, as we learn from verse 15. And here we see that they are useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The scriptures are the words of sanctification. They show us that Christ is the Messiah, and they show us how we are to respond to that gospel, and how we are to live our lives in light of the gospel. They sanctify us, making us holy like Christ through teaching, through rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible, which contains the very words of God, is useful for teaching and that it contains everything that God has decided to keep a record of throughout history. So we can know about God and we can know about creation. We can know about humans, how we have sinned and why we needed Jesus to come to redeem our sins. And we can know about how we are to live out our lives in obedience to him. All of that and so much more is contained in the Bible. It's useful for teaching because it contains 100% truth that can teach us about God and life, and how we are to live our lives. It's the only place that we can get true knowledge about God and his purpose for our lives. The Bible is useful for teaching, and it's useful for rebuking. To rebuke is to express sharp disapproval of someone's actions, and the Bible is useful for that because it teaches us what is right. The Bible contains the commands of God, and it contains instructions about how we are to live in obedience to God. When we sin and break God's commands, we are warned in Scripture about our need to repent of that sin and to live in obedience to God. The Bible warns us through accounts of those who have come before us and have sinned, and we can see those examples and how that sin affected their lives. The Bible is using, useful for teaching and for rebuking, and it is useful for correction. When there is sin that is rebuked, there are behaviors and attitudes that need to be corrected. The Bible has the words of life. It has the words that we need to read when there is sin in our lives and we need to know the right way to live. It doesn't only tell us when we are in error, but it also shows us how to correct that error and to begin to live in a way that honors God. The Bible is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and it is useful for training in righteousness. The only one who is righteous is God, and he is the only one without sin. 
Studying his word trains those who follow him in righteousness because it teaches us how to live our lives in a way that aligns with God's standards for righteousness. By studying the Bible, we can see that all that God expects of us. So as verse 17 says, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We live in a sinful world with, with much wickedness surrounding us. But if we can follow the example of Paul, if we can continue on our faith and value Scripture in our lives, we can stay the course. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you have in it. We thank you for all of the benefits that we can receive by having your word. We thank you that it's perfect like you. We thank you that we can trust everything in it. I pray, God, that if there's anyone here today who has not uh, made the decision to trust in you, I pray that they would. And I pray that for the rest of us, we would, that we would avoid all evil in this world, that we would cling to you, that we would follow good biblical examples like the life of Christ and that of Paul, and that we would make a commitment to staying the course in our faith. I pray all this in your name. Amen.